All right, the book of Esther will be in the second chapter, so if you'll turn there to Esther chapter 2. We started chapter 2 last week. We got through verse 7, so we'll pick it up at verse 8, but just um, uh, if you'll turn to Esther chapter 2, and we'll see how far the Lord takes us tonight, we'll move into chapter 3. If you need a Bible to follow along with us, um, just raise your hand, and Pastor John will slip you a Bible. So you can uh, study the Word of God with us. So Esther, you'll find right after the book of Nehemiah, right before the book of Job in the Old Testament. We're in the second chapter. And again, we'll pick it up at about verse 8. Probably verse 5 is where I'm going to start reading um, as we do that. Just to remind you that, again, parents, that Friday night is youth night at Montfort Park. They meet out in the park in the summertime. So this is the last uh, summer event out there at Montfort Park. Everybody knows where that is, just right off 47th. Avenue, but we will be on the west side, all right, and we can meet there six, eight o'clock. So it's kind of a family time, and so parents come on out. I know the kids are, um, you know, looking at playing against the parents and kickball or something like that. So uh, I need help, all right. I don't want to be the only one that they're <laughs> stomping all over and everything. So, um, so six, eight o'clock, it would be a good time. So. Um, this Friday. Then Saturday, I hope that we can see all of you, if you can make it, to the all-church picnic that's going to be out at the Banowitz at the, um, there in, uh, as you, um, at 5 o'clock. We'll provide the meat, uh, tableware, uh, drinks. If you want to bring a dish to bring uh, and share, that would be wonderful. And it's a great time for us to gather as a church and to be able to have a meal together and fellowship together. So if you can make it, 5 o'clock. There's maps to the Banowitz uh, at the information desk, addresses there in the bulletin, easy to find. As you head out towards Kersey, just turn on CR 49. That's the Kingsburg-Hudson um, Highway is what I call it. And uh, go four miles as you're heading to the south. And then right there at the intersection of CR 49, CR 50, you'll see the Banowitz, the gathering event place, right? Uh, you'll see a sign there and uh, right on the left-hand side and uh, park in there. And we're probably going to have that big tent set up is what the plan is and be outside and have some cool breeze. And it's supposed to be a nice day on Saturday. So we're looking forward to that. So Saturday at 5 o'clock, we'll have some games out there and things like that for the kids. Always have a wonderful time. So come and eat with us and fellowship with us on Saturday. Then on Sunday, we'll be continuing in John's Gospel and we'll be in chapter 7, and as we start chapter 7, we're really going to be looking at the last few months of Jesus' uh, ministry before he goes to the cross. So chapter 7, he's going to make his way to Jerusalem. There's going to be a great debate about Jesus and dispute, and so we'll be looking at that. It's been a wonderful study in John's gospel. Bring somebody out to Calvary Chapel, 830, 1030, um, as we study John chapter 7, verses 1 through 39, as we're, uh, we'll probably get through on Sunday. So we're looking forward to that. Other things that are there in your bulletin, take a look at it. But we want to be in Esther. Chapter 2 is where we left off last time. And you recall that as we started the book of Esther, the book of Esther is a real story that took place in about 478 B.C. And it takes place chronologically. If you were to read the book of Ezra, which we studied not long ago, going through the Old Testament, 
between chapters 6 and 7. In the book of Ezra, you know that the first uh, six chapters deals with uh, the return of the Jews from the Babylonian captivity. So to kind of keep things in historical perspective, remember that it was the Jews that went off, the, the house of Judah, that is, the southern nation, in 605 B.C. In the, in the captivity. And there's three waves of captivity historically. 605 B.C., 597 B.C., that's where Ezekiel went off in the captivity. Daniel was in the first one in 605. And then 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar finally comes into Jerusalem. He destroys Jerusalem. But then the Babylonians were overtaken by the Medo-Persian Empire. It was a, a combination of the Medes and the Persians that got together. Daniel chapter 5 records the events historically, what took place as Cyrus uh, would come into the city and take the city. And at that time, shortly after that, he would make it a decree that the Jews can come back and rebuild the temple, and that's what they did. And there was a fairly small number. Zerubbabel would come back, the civil leader, as well as Joshua the high priest, and they led a contingency of about 50,000 people back. It was difficult. The city was in ruins. There was rubble everywhere. They, they cleared off the rubble on the Temple Mount area, and they ended up rebuilding the temple. So it would be after that that the story of Esther takes place. And as we saw last week, that Cyrus was the first king of the Medo-Persian Empire. Then Darius, Darius was ruling during the time that Daniel was thrown into the lion's den there in Daniel chapter 6. And after Darius, here comes um, the king Xerxes or Ahasuerus. He's the king at this time. And you recall last week as we opened up chapter 1, the king, here is King Ahasuerus. He has this great, you know, feast for all his leaders um, the kingdom is very wealthy. It's very large. It reaches all the way from India, clear down into northern Africa, all that area of the Middle East. There's 127 provinces in this kingdom. So he has this feast. He gathered all his leaders because really he, he's showing off his kingdom. He's showing off his wealth. And he's also trying to get them together because we know historically that he wanted to go against the Greeks. The Greeks are beginning to rise to power. His father, Darius, went against the Greeks at the Battle of Marathon, and he was defeated, Darius. So he wants to kind of avenge his father's defeat. And, and so he's buttering them up, trying to get this alliance together. We want to get a huge army to go against the Greeks. But in that festive you know, time or six months that he had all this uh, you know, festivities going on and, and hosting these leaders, he also would have a week-long uh, party and festival with uh, all of the people there in the capital of Shushan. And in that seven weeks, as he is there hosting, you know, the leaders, he's there, the people are celebrating. Um, we know that uh, he has nothing left to show off except for one thing, and that was the queen, Queen Vasti. So in his drunken state, he says, hey, Queen Vasti, I want you to come out and present yourself. And most scholars and most Bible teachers, you know, suggest that he was asking asking her to come out in a very, very immodest way, perhaps even nude, just wearing her crown. 
Queen Vasti, for whatever reason, says, no, I'm not going to come out. So he's embarrassed. He, he is uh, one that is humiliated by the queen and because uh, he's there. He's with his friends, even though they have been drinking. She says no, and so he is one that becomes very furious about that. He makes a decree that Queen Vasti is no longer the queen, and her position is going to be given to another. So we moved into chapter 2 last week, and between chapter 1 and chapter 2 is actually a four-year period. We're going to see that um, as we travel through chapter 2. And in that four years, what happened was, is that uh, Ahasuerus, that he gathered this huge army, about 2 million men, and he went up against the Greeks, and he won that battle, but it cost him dearly. It cost him a lot of men. Um, it cost the kingdom economically. They're hurting. So he comes back, and that's why it says, after these things, as you open up chapter 2, um, he remembers Queen Vasti. I don't know exactly what that means. Some have suggested that he missed her. And, and so the wise men come along, and they say, listen, why don't we do this? Why don't we have a, a, a beauty contest? We'll gather all the, the beautiful virgins in the kingdom, and we'll bring them to you, and you will, out of all of those, as preparations are made, and we'll see that as we go through this chapter, with these young women, then you are able to pick a new queen. And he liked that. So we know that in this story here, again, that happened 2,500 years ago, we have the king Ahasuerus, also, as I said to you, known as Xerxes. We have the king and we were introduced last week to the other main characters, and, and we see that Mordecai was introduced to us in uh, verse 5. Uh, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, and he was uh, the son of Kish of Benjamite. And his family was taken away by Babylon into captivity. And so Mordecai is a certain uh, Jew, as we know, and he has a cousin, Esther. And he had brought up Esther, as we see here, introduced to her in verse 7. Mordecai had brought up Hadassah. That is her Jewish name. And that is Esther. That's her Persian name. Her name literally means star. And she was raised by Mordecai because her parents, um, you know, had passed away. And it tells us there in verse 7 that the young woman was lovely and beautiful. When her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So he's raised by Mordecai, and she is very lovely and beautiful in appearance. So she is taken by, you know, the, the eunuchs that are going around the empire and gathering up these young ladies to be brought to be really in a harem in the king. And we know that she was beautiful in appearance and lovely, but we're going to see, more importantly, that she was very beautiful in her heart and her spirit. And that's where true beauty is found. That's where true loveliness is found, is just having a heart for the Lord and having a heart for people. And we're going to see that she's going to show great courage as we go through this, this book, 
as she's going to be willing to risk her life to save the Jewish people. So we're introduced to, to the king, Ahasuerus, and we are introduced to Mordecai, a certain Jew, and then there's Esther, who Mordecai had raised as his own daughter. And let's pick it up now at verse 8. So it was when the king commanded and decreed were heard, and when many young women were gathered at Shushan, the citadel, under the custody of Haggai, that uh, Esther was also taken to the king's palace in care of Haggai, the custodian of the woman. So this eunuch, Haggai, he had the responsibility of taking these women. We don't know exactly how many, but Josephus, the Jewish historian, makes a note that there was about 400 of these young virgins that were gathered from all over the Medo-Persian Empire. And I don't believe that they really had a choice. And I don't believe that Esther really had a choice because you see here that they were gathered under the custody of Haggai. So here is a young lady... She is taken from her home. She's taken from Mordecai. She has no choice. She's taken because she's very beautiful. So here is a captive, a product, her family of the captivity of Babylon. And she's taken captive once again by the king of the Medo-Persian Empire. And Haggai here, who's the custodian, of course, he would have a very, very um, you know, prominent position and in, in, in serious responsibility because if he doesn't do his job well in preparing these young ladies for the pleasure of the king, then it's off with his head or he gets hung on the gallows. So here is Haggai, and he uh, is taking care of uh, all these young virgins that are coming, and they're going to have um, you know, preparations made, and then which one is going to be crowned the queen, as we will see, and most of you know the answer to that. But let's continue reading in verse 9. Now the young woman pleased him, that is Esther, and she obtained his favor, so he readily gave beauty preparations to her besides her allowance. And then seven choice maidservants were uh, provided for her from the king's palace, and he moved her and her maidservant to the best place in the house of the women. So we see here that um, Esther attains favor with Haggai. Why? Because God's hand is on her. Because God has a plan. And I think that she, Esther, had this excellent spirit that was in her, just as we read in Daniel chapter 6, that as Daniel, he was off in the captivity, and he was taken off in the captivity when he was just about 17 years old. And he was one that determined in his heart not to defile himself. And the Lord blessed him for that and promoted him to be really the right-hand man of Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful you know, man uh, there on the face of the earth at that time, overseeing the Babylonian uh, Empire. And it would carry on to the Medo-Persian Empire to where Daniel was the right-hand man to Darius. And you recall that in that chapter, it was the other leaders that really hated Daniel. And they tried to find fault with him, but they could not find fault with him. And it tells us that Daniel had an excellent spirit within him. And I think that that evidence of his godliness and his godly integrity and character was very evident to where God would use it to be able to, to bless Daniel and use Daniel in a very powerful way. And the same excellent spirit that was in Daniel, I believe, is in Esther. Yes, God is working. But I believe Esther, again, 
that more than her physical beauty, there was a spiritual beauty that was there, and she found favor with Haggai, and, and so she's going to be used to God in a powerful way. That same excellent spirit is in you as well. And what my prayer is, is that that excellent spirit, which is the Holy Spirit of God, that as the Holy Spirit is in you and fills you, that as you're manifesting the love and the light of Jesus Christ and the truth and wisdom of the Lord, that you're going to be used in a powerful way in how God wants you to be used. I pray that as you are one, that people are seeing the reality of Jesus Christ in your heart and in your life and how you live and what you say and how you conduct yourself, that people will look at you and me and be able to say, there's one, that there's something different about them. But what they're seeing is that excellent spirit. They're seeing God that's alive in your heart, the Holy Spirit that lives in your heart and is so evident in the way that you live. God wants to use you and me in being a light and being a blessing to others as we are just surrendered to him completely and allow him to do that work that he wants to do. So God has a plan here. He's already working. Esther has found favor with Haggai. In verse 10, Esther had not revealed her people or family, for Mordecai had charged her not to reveal it. And every day Mordecai paced in front of the court of the women's quarters to learn of Esther's welfare and what was happening to her. So as we look at this, it's interesting that Mordecai tells Esther not to reveal her Jewish identity. Now, the debate is among, you know, those who like to discuss these kinds of things and Bible teachers is, was it wrong for Mordecai to do this? Was it wrong for him to tell her to, you know, don't reveal your Jewish identity? And the reason that that is asked and discussed and debated among Christian circles is because you and I as Christians, we know that we cannot live a life of denial that I am a Christian, Jesus would say that you don't put a lamp under a bed. You put it up on the table. So let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. And we also know that Jesus would give a very sobering warning there in Matthew chapter 10 that if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father. If you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father. So we can't just hide identity as a Christian, you know, all of our lives, that we are to be ones, that that time of temptation, that time of testing is going to come, where you're going to have to stand up and say, I am not going to do this. I'm not going to participate in this. I'm not going to go, you know, with the group after work and go hang out at the bar or go drinking or be involved in these activities because I am a Christian, so there is that time where we're going to reveal that we are going to be ones, that we are going to, you know, we love the Lord, we stand for the Lord, we believe in Him. But here we see that um, as her identity was told not to be revealed, um, you know, I, I think that it's interesting. I don't think so much here at this time that Mordecai is telling her not to reveal, you know, you know, to conceal her identity. I think that as God is working here, that her identity is going to be revealed at the right time. You know, it's the same with you and me. When I meet somebody, I don't, first thing I say to them 
is, hey, I'm a Christian. You know, when I am flying on an airplane and I sit down next to somebody and we get to talking, um, I don't always say, well, I'm a Christian right away. That may come out in conversation over time. And uh, sometimes if I tell people, well, I'm a pastor of a church, it's like clam up time, you know. It's like, oh, you know, that's, that's nice, you know. They turn to the other person and start talking. There is a time where we're going to reveal. There is that right time to reveal that. So uh, I'm not really, you know, um, certain that we should be so hard on Mordecai because Esther is going to reveal that in the right time. And Mordecai, he's going to reveal that he is a Jew as we go into chapter 3 because that time of testing comes for him. That time where he says, I'm not going to compromise in this area. Listen. We need to let people know that we believe in Jesus Christ. There's no doubt about it. Because that time will come where someone will say, we want you to do this or participate or compromise in this area. And that's where we stand up and we say that, yes, that I am a Christian, I am a believer, and I'm not going to do that. But also that there are those times where, you know, as people get to know us, they see that excellent spirit and they'll say, you know, why is it that you're different? What is it about you? And we can reveal that time that we are a Christian. The second thing that sometimes that I hear that um, we see here is that um, Mordecai kind of gets, um, uh, you know, criticized a little bit because he's pacing in, in front of the court of the women to learn of Esther's welfare and what was happening to her. And it's a sign that he isn't trusting in God. And I think that that's a little bit hard on him. Um, I think that as we look at this, that um, he's pacing, obviously, in the court of the women um, here. Uh, shows me that he has real concern and a love for Esther as a father. And we know how that is. We know how that is, those of us who are parents for children, that we can have concern and we can, you know, um, be anxious about certain things as their kids are growing up. But one thing is for sure that as Philippians chapter 4 tells us that we don't have to be anxious but through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be known to God and the peace of God that passes understanding will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So I don't want to be too hard on Mordecai. This is a very difficult situation that he's in. He cares for Esther he knows that she is not in a good place. This is not, you know, a place of, of righteousness or holiness. And, um, but he's concerned for her. But he is also going to learn, just as we learn in our Christian journey, that God is with him and God is working. And God's going to protect her just as the Lord is our protector and our shield. And, and we always want to pray, Lord, keep our children under the shadow of your wings to protect our kids. And in those times, whatever we feel for our children, we feel anxious, or whatever situation that you might be in where you feel anxious, always go to the Lord. And the Lord desires to give you that peace that passes understanding in our lives. So here's Mordecai, and, and she's taken, and, and God is working. He doesn't know what's happening to her. He doesn't understand that, that you know, she's found favor with Haggai. In verse 12, each young woman turned came to go into King Ahasuerus after she had completed 12 months preparation according to the regulations for the women. I think it was 12 months 
one of the reasons that some have suggested to make sure that they weren't pregnant. But thus were the days of their preparation portion, six months with oil of myrrh, six months with perfumes and preparations for beautifying women. And thus prepared each young woman went to the king, and she was given whatever uh, she desired to take with her from the women's quarter to the king's palace. And in the evening she went, and in the morning she returned to the second house of the women to the cust- custody of Shahazgaz, the king's eunuch, who kept the concubines. And she would not go to the king again unless the king delighted in her and called for her by name. Now, a couple of things to keep in mind here. This is not a godly place. Twelve months preparation, and then one of them would be called to go spend the night with the king. She would be sent back the next day And if he delighted in you, then he would call you. Now, here's the thing to keep in mind. That first of all, that when she went back, it wasn't like it was like, you know, this is a contest. You can now go home, all right? Um, The king doesn't, you know, want to see you anymore. She became a part of his harem. And she did not go before the presence of the king unless the king called her. Now, keep that in mind as well, because Esther very much knows that. And anyone who went into the presence of the king, particularly in this situation, and if he didn't call her or if she went into his presence and he didn't lift that golden scepter up, then, you know, that was big trouble for you. And you could lose your life. Keep that in mind as the story unfolds here. So this is not a godly place. This wasn't where these young women, they really are in captivity. And they are really, really, you know, in this place of, of being in the harem of uh, the king. They can't go home here. Um, and we read in verse 15, Now, when it, the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter to go into the king, she requested nothing but what Haggai, the king's eunuch, the custodian of the women, advised. And Esther obtained favor in the sight of all who saw her. So Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which was the month of Tabeth, in the seventh year of his reign. And the king loved Esther more than all the other women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the, the virgins. So he set the royal crown upon her head, made her queen instead of Vasti, and then the king made a great feast, the Feast of Esther, for all his officials and servants. And he proclaimed a holiday in the provinces and gave gifts according to the generosity of the king. So Esther finds favor with the king more than all the other virgins, is crowned queen. There's a large feast to celebrate this. Apparently, the king, he loved the party, as we've already seen in two chapters here. And so it's the Feast of Esther. But I want to remind you of something here as we see that she finds favor, you know, with Haggai and now with the king. God is working. God is promoting her. It's obvious here. It wasn't by luck. It wasn't by, you know, who, you know, what a break, you know, that, that Esther, you know, is now the queen. It isn't by accident. We know that God will promote those who he desires to promote, like he did with Joseph in the book of Genesis to become the prime minister of Egypt, to help, you know, Jacob and his family, and also Daniel in Babylon, as well as Esther here. And I want to remind you of something that's an important truth for you and for me. 
In Psalm 75, it tells us that God is the judge and he puts down one and he exalts another. And as you read that Psalm of Asaph, it goes on to say that the king is not to exalt self or to, to boast in self. Um, the king is, you know, as Asaph is saying, let God exalt you. And that's something to remember. Let God exalt you in his way for his purposes in his time. Now, I think that as we go out and we work, that we should be the hardest workers. I think Christians should be the hardest workers, that we should do well. We should um, seek to work hard. Uh, there's nothing wrong with planning and trying to, you know, um, you know, be promoted at work or, you know, be a part of a business or whatever it may be. But here's the thing. When it comes to promotion, when it comes to position, that let God exalt you. So much today is the emphasis on you've got to exalt yourself and you've got to promote yourself and you've got to do it all and just step over everybody to do it. And here's the thing is we do our best, we can commit the rest. That's what I like to say. Hey, let's do our best, be a hard worker, you know, or, or you know, be committed to whatever is before you, whatever it is that you're doing, and then commit the rest. And in due time, if God wants to exalt you, he will exalt you for his purposes and in his time. And in that, we can just rest in that. So if you're doing your best and you don't get that promotion or that position, then God is doing something else in your life. So you don't have to push it. You don't have to strive. You don't have to strain. Just let God do what he wants to do. And that's what he's doing here. He's promoted Esther for his purposes in his time, in his way. So she becomes queen, and we see that God continues the work. Verse 19, when the virgins were gathered together a second time, Mordecai sat within the king's gate. So again, they didn't go home. They're part of his harem. And here's Mordecai who sat at the king's gate. Now Esther had not revealed her family and her people just as Mordecai had charged her. For Esther obeyed the command of Mordecai as when she was brought up by him. So um, here is Esther, the queen. And, um, you know, just because she's the queen, it doesn't mean, again, that the king's going to live a monogamous life. He still has this harem. And verse 21 tells us that Mordecai is promoted to judge sitting at the gate. That's the place where the king's business took place. Now, how did he get that position? Did, did Esther put in a good word for Mordecai? We don't know. But again, God is the one that's exalting, and God is the one that is working ultimately. And it's the same with you, and it's the same with me. In verse 21, and in those days, while well, Mordecai sat within the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, Bigthan and Teresh, doorkeepers, became furious and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. So the matter became known to Mordecai, who told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. In verse 23, and when an inquiry was made into the matter, it was confirmed, and both were hanged on the gallows, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So we see here that Mordecai learns of a plot that these two guys, gatekeepers, uh, are going to have the king killed. And he lets Esther know the conspiracy, and so he ends up, because Mordecai finds out about this, he doesn't keep quiet that the king's life is spared. Now think about this. Mordecai could have said, I didn't hear anything. 
I don't care if they kill the king. This guy is a moral man. This guy took Esther, who's like a daughter to me. This man, you know, deserves to be killed. He could have been bitter. He could have been angry. He could have turned his ear away from this, but he did what was right. And it's really, really important to you and to me that we do what is right in the sight of the Lord. That we're not ones that we turn away from doing what is right, even if we perhaps that person is difficult to work with or live with or go to school with or work out in the field with, that we need to do what is right and what is right in the eyes of the Lord. And as 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17 says, Fear God and honor the king. Here he said, you know what? I, I can't let the king be killed. So he lets you know, Esther know, then they tell the king and inform the king in Mordecai's name. Now they record this. Now keep this in mind as the story unfolds here that is written in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. And as we go into chapter 3 after these things, we see King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, and he is an Agaite and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who are with him. So now we're introduced to one more main character, and that is Haman. He's the bad guy. So all you guys can say, boo, you know. Uh, he is, yeah, you can hiss and all this as we read his name. He's uh, interesting, as we see here, he's promoted by the king, and he's an Agaite. Now, what does that mean? He's a descendant of Agai. Does that ring a bell with you? I think it does with some of you. Agai, remember him in 1 Samuel chapter 15. That Saul, who was the king of Israel at that time. What you are to do is you go and you are to destroy all the Amalekites. All the Amalekites, wipe them out. And you are to destroy the sheep and the oxen is what you are to do. God would say, clear back in, in Exodus, that I will blot out the Amalekites. Why? Well, let's go back to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 17. As the children of Israel are out there in the wilderness wondering, here comes the Amalekites. The Amalekites would attack, you know, the, the rear of the children of Israel. They would pluck off and, and kill the, the weak, and, and they were a real thorn in the side of the children of Israel. So they go to war against, you know, the children of Israel. Joshua's doing battle down below. And you recall in Exodus chapter 17, there's Moses. He has his hands up, and as long as he's raising up his hands, that there is victory. But his arms got tired, and so here came her and uh, Aaron, and they raised up his arms, and they would have victory. And that's when the Lord said that I'm going to blot out the Amalekites. And the Amalekites, as we look at them in the Old Testament, they're a picture of the flesh. You know how the flesh will sneak up on us when we're feeling weak? Sneak up on us and begin to... to, to pick on us and, and attack us. And one way is all of us struggle at times with the flesh. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. It's through prayer. And Moses, as he's up there with his hands up, you and I, the way that we can defeat the Amalekites of our lives is through prayer. And having those who come alongside and are praying with you and for you. That's why the body of Christ is so important. That we encourage each other and pray for each other. Because it's, it's hard at times. 
and we have struggles, and, and we become weak. And it, there's nothing like just continuing to pray, yourself to pray, but have that brother and that sister that's praying with you, that are holding up your arms. I pray that we're never ones that we're just swinging on each other's arms. Being a burden and, and a heavy burden on others and coming down on them rather than lifting them up, that's what we want to do. And as we are doing that as a body, as we are loving one another and praying for one another in that way, we're going to see great victory. And so the Amalekites, that's their story. So here it comes, hundreds of years later. And here's Saul, the first king of Israel. And, and um, Samuel comes to him and says, The Lord says you destroy all the Amalekites, sheep and oxen and everything. We know in chapter 15, here comes Saul. He comes back. There's great celebration. He has the best of the sheep and the oxen. And he has who? The king of the Amalekites, whose name is Agai. It was Samuel, the prophet. The Lord said, I've rejected Saul because he disobeyed me. And it was Samuel that came to him and said, Saul, you know, what are you doing? I'm paraphrasing, of course. And Saul says, I performed all that the Lord has told me to do. Really? Samuel would say. Then what's the sound of the sheep and oxen in my ears? Well, I, I brought them back as a sacrifice. You see, what was happening is Saul wanted Samuel to exalt him before the people, bless me before the people. He'd already made a monument for himself on Carmel there. And, and we're going to have a great celebration where people are going to look at me and say, look how spiritual and how wonderful he is. And it's a sacrifice. And, and it was Samuel that said, no, Saul. And, and who's this guy? Well, that's Agai, the king of the Amalekites. I kind of brought him back as a trophy. And it was Samuel that said that you've been rejected as king. And it's better to obey than the sacrifice. And of course, in chapter 16, it would be Samuel that would go to the home of Jesse in Bethlehem and anoint the new king of Israel, David, who was just a young shepherd boy at that time, who had a heart after him. You know, that's what God wants. He wants us to have a heart after him. It was Saul at that time that wanted to exalt himself and bless me for the people and quit saying this, Saul, you know, or Samuel, quit, quit coming down on me. I mean, I did 99% of what God wanted me to, but he wanted to take the glory away from the Lord. He wanted to exalt himself. He was disobedient to the Lord. The story doesn't quite end there. You go to 1 Samuel, and you go to... The end of 1 Samuel, you know how Saul pursued David in the wilderness for all those years? And, and Saul, the king of Israel, had neglected his responsibilities as king so much that the Philistines got stronger and stronger, and they attacked the Israelites, and it was Saul and Jonathan and his sons that ended up being killed on Mount Gilboa, and it was who that ended up killing Saul? It was an Amalekite. It was an Amalekite. Listen. The Amalekites, a picture of the flesh. Never get to the point of your Christian life where you say, it's okay if I have this agai. It's okay if I have this, this you know, little agai, this, this fleshly thing. It's not going to hurt anybody. 
So what if I, I pull up some things on the computer at night? So what if I go and, and hang out with the guys and we go do a little partying? So what if I, you know, get involved in this activity or watch this carnal thing or whatever? It's just a little agai that I got. I'm good most of the time. And I'll tell you what, any of us that have that kind of mindset, that you know what's going to happen? The son of Agai is going to do you in. And it was the son of Agai that ended up as Saul's there on that mountain dying. And there's that young man with the sword. And he's saying, kill me, kill me. And he said, who are you? As David would ask that guy who gave the report, he said, I'm an Amalekite. Saul should have gotten rid of all of the Amalekites, get rid of them, do away with them, but he kept Agai. And somewhere down the line, he didn't get rid of all the Amalekites. He left some, and it ended up killing him on that mountain. And if we say, you know what, I can have Agai, it's okay. The son of Agai down the road is going to get you, and it's going to get me. And that's why it's very, very important that you and I, that we don't have the mindset of Christians of, you know, how close can I sail the boat to the rocks and not get shipwrecked or sink the boat and still be a Christian? How carnal can I be? How close to the world can I get? That should not be our mindset. Our mindset should be that, Lord, I love you, and I want to be fully surrendered to you, and I want to live for you, and I want to get rid of those things because the Lord knows that it will hurt us and do us in over time. So the question tonight, and I was hoping to get into chapter 3, but maybe this is a good time for us to stop. Are there any guys in your life that God's been dealing with you about? God's been speaking to you about? Again, it's a battle. The Amalekite, the flesh, it comes against us. But you know that the Lord's been convicting you. And the Lord is saying, I want you to get rid of this thing. And in the honesty of your heart, maybe there's some here tonight, just maybe, that you say, I do have an guy." And it doesn't seem to bother me or I'm not convicted by it or, you know, so what? So I got this deal going on. So I go out with the guys, you know, so we watch these things. So we go out, whatever it is, and you know that it's not pleasing to the Lord. Son of Agai will get you. For Saul, it took 20 years but it got him. And the flesh, if you give that open door to the flesh, it will get you and it will get me. And that's why a loving God says that here's the love of God. Keep my commandments and my commandments are not burdensome. It's the sin and the compromise that ends up being burdensome and doing you in. It is living for the Lord and saying, Lord, you're dealing with me. And Lord, I need to get rid of this Agai. I need to get rid of this Amalekite. And here, here, hundreds of years later, after that story in 1 Samuel chapter 15, we're talking 500 years later, 
Here's a descendant of Agai who's going to try to destroy the whole Jewish nation, the whole Jewish race. You got an Agai tonight? Confess it to the Lord. Give it to the Lord. And say, Lord, we need to kill it. Help me to live for you. Because somewhere down the road, if you keep that Agai, it's going to do you in and it's going to wipe you out. And the consequences can be great. So, Father, I think that this is a good time for us to stop as we enter into chapter 3. And, Lord, to just really think about and pray about, Lord, those struggles that we can have, but how we need you and cry out to you because it's real, the battles that we go through, the addictions, the the struggles, the carnality, the sin. And Lord, we know that you've called us to holiness. You've called us to a life to live for you. Maybe it's an attitude of the heart. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's bitterness. Father, maybe there's an agai in our life that we think it's no big deal. But over time, we know that it's going to have terrible consequences and they begin to really attack us and do us in and bring us down so tonight well we just got a little time if there's an agai in your life right now the Lord's been speaking to you the Lord's been dealing with you will you go to him tonight and ask for his help. Lord, we pray that he would help us in our struggles, whether it's watching things that we shouldn't be watching. We know that pornography is destroying people's lives. And it's destroying a lot of Christians. Maybe it's the spirit of partying, using drugs. Maybe it's being dishonest, lying. Maybe it's bitterness, anger. Whatever it is, Lord, help us to just say, Lord, I know it's wrong. And my hands are up right now, just as Moses up on that hill and I pray that you would help me, Lord. I can't do it on my own. But I know I need to get rid of this, this Amalekite, this Agai, this Haman. Lord, help me to do that, to work purity into our hearts, Lord, and holiness that you've called us to. And we know that your promises, your commands, that you're going to help us to keep those commands that you're going to work in us by the power of the Holy Spirit, that we be surrendered completely to you, that our mindset would not be that, Lord, how close can I sail my boat to the rocks, you know, to the world before I sink, but, Lord, how far can I get away from that and just be close to you? Not to straddle the fence as the children of Israel did in First Kings. As Elijah said, how long are you going to be between two 
opinions. We can't have two masters. But to live fully for you, and especially in the day in which we're living in. Because the temptation will come and the testing will come. Are we going to stand up and say that I am a child of the living God? And to let our light so shine before men that they may see the reality of Jesus, that we belong to him and we're going to stand for what is right. Lord, help us to have that courage, to have that strength to do that that I'm not going to watch that thing. I'm not going to participate in that. I'm not going to go to this place where there's sin and carnality. I'm not going to do that. But I am going to love you, Lord, and grow in you. And I'm going to love my family. To be the man of God that you want me to be. To be the woman of God. To be the mom, the dad to your children that he wants you to be strong and courageous and to stand up and say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So, Father, we thank you that we can come here tonight. And, Lord, just give our hearts to you right now. So, Father, we thank you for tonight. And we thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy. Strengthen us, be with us. Help us to go out of here being a light and having that excellent spirit, the Holy Spirit, manifesting from us to enable us to live the life that you've called us to live. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Would you please stand? You know, at the service.